Take your Bibles and open them with me to Luke 22. We will finish out the last <clears throat> bit of Luke 22 and head into Luke 23 this morning as we make our way through Luke's Gospel. Luke 22, specifically we'll pick up in verse 63. I'll read the text and then we'll ask for the Lord's help in its illumination this morning. <clears throat> Starting in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were, ur- they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he has sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. 
So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Friends, this is the reading of God's word. Let's pray now and ask for his help in understanding it. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We ask now that you would illuminate it to us, that you would help us to understand all that you would have us to in it. Lord, we ask that as we consider it, that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus. Help us to see him as he truly is, God. Lord, we ask that we would be amazed by his glory. Lord, we know that it is in the death of Christ that we see his glory in a most peculiar way. And so we ask now that you would do this for us. Encourage our hearts by what we find in the Lord Jesus. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Every text of Scripture has a, a main point, a, a main idea that the author, that is the, the human author and the divine author, intend to make. They, they have a point that they want to get across. And it's, it's important to recognize that because the main idea governs how the audience understands and rightly responds to the text. Sometimes that calls the audience to do something in response. Other times it produces a call simply to believe something that the author has set forth. In this text, if Luke were to pick a verse of Scripture that were to distill for us the main idea of this passage, I'm convinced that it would be 2 Corinthians 5.21, which reads, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This, this verse summarizes the gospel in a very concise and, and clear way, which, which, just as an aside, if evangelism is something that you struggle with by virtue of the fact that you lack confidence in your ability to articulate the gospel, I would encourage you to, to spend some intentional time memorizing verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, friends. Because as you steep yourself in the Bible's presentation of the gospel, you begin to take on the framework of the Bible as it relates to the gospel. And, and, and you begin to articulate the gospel using Bible language. In doing so, you become a more confident and competent evangelist. So I would just as an aside, I encourage you to memorize texts like this that we find in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That said, this verse in 2 Corinthians, it not only clearly sets forth the gospel, it summarizes Luke's message in this passage, which we have in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul teaching us the theological reality of the substitutionary atonement. And Luke here is telling the story that contains all the elements of those theological realities. He's telling these in the movements of the passage. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus is the righteous one, and he's treated as a guilty sinner, so that those who are actually guilty sinners 
are declared innocent before God. And that's precisely what we find in our passage in Luke this morning. Luke lays this out in two primary movements. In the first movement, we find that in the death of Christ, the innocent is treated as guilty. And in the second movement of the text, we find that in the death of Christ, the guilty is treated as innocent. There are a couple of subheadings that are observable as you make your way through the text. But these are the the main divisions of the text. And so these will serve as the main divisions of the sermon this morning as well. So let's look to the text and consider first how the innocent is treated as guilty. Our passage opens with the guards of the Jewish high court holding Jesus in custody. But not just holding him in custody, assuming nothing of his guilt or innocence. No, what we find here is consistent with the way that Jesus is treated throughout all of his trials. That is, he, he, the only man ever to live who is truly and totally innocent, is treated as guilty. The righteous, we find, treated as a wretch. Before Jesus was ever arraigned by the Jewish court, the soldiers decide to pass the time by making sport of him. The text tells us they were mocking him as they beat him. You can see them in your mind's eye, deciding to take advantage of their position of authority, getting some brutish entertainment at the expense of a distressed Jesus. It's it's the exact opposite of what we observe in the Lord Jesus, who from eternity past has authority and power, not because they were delegated to him, but because power is inherent to his being. Yet yet possessing all might and strength, he has not sought his own pleasure at the expense of others. He's humbled himself to serve God's elect. He's left His throne in heaven with all of its majestic glory and has come to seek and save the lost, humbling Himself even to this moment when the flesh and bones, the the knuckles and cartilage that He formed would strike against His face, not just in arrogant opposition, but as a pleasurable pastime. Verse 64 tells us they they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? He who is the greater prophet, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, the soldiers blindfold and belittle, commanding him to display his divine omniscience for their unbelieving enjoyment. It could be said that this whole passage displays something worse than that the innocent is treated as guilty. At least to be found guilty, one must stand trial and and, and be given the dignified opportunity to defend themselves and have others testify for them. But here, Jesus is stripped of all dignity and honor. He's treated as a guilty criminal instead of a dignified man. That's to say nothing of his identity as the Lord of glory. Now one may ask, well, yes, but wasn't Jesus tried and then convicted? I mean, how can we say that 
Jesus was treated unjustly when he was found guilty upon standing trial. But those more familiar with the so-called trials that Jesus endured and underwent, they know that justice is far from what he experienced. He was brought before the governing authorities of both Israel and Rome. And this question of the just nature of his punishment is certainly put to rest as you consider Jesus' prosecution before these authorities. And considering his trials, it becomes clear that Jesus was innocent both in the religious court and the civil courts. The scriptures would have us to consider first his prosecution in the religious court. Now, other gospel accounts tell us more explicitly as the story opens up, that, that Jesus' trial before the religious court began the night of his arrest, which makes the whole of his trial illegitimate because that was not consistent with Jewish law. That said, Luke tells us that when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. This would be the Jewish high court of the Sanhedrin. And they took Jesus there to be arraigned. But rather than being charged and given representation to defend himself, which was the lawful way to proceed, Jesus' guilt was assumed by the court. Not only was his guilt assumed, but contrary to lawful proceedings, he was encouraged to incriminate himself. This is what we find in verse 67, when they say outright, if you are the Christ, tell us. Which again, is, is not permissible according to their own law code. But Jesus responds in the way most appropriate to their pompous presumption of guilt. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. You see, he's already had the experience of them avoiding the questions that he asked that would lead to a right understanding of his identity. We've seen that as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke. So, so here, he simply acknowledges their corrupt motives and goes on to appeal to God for his vindication. In verse 69, Jesus rises above the judgments of human courts, be they religious or governmental, and he says that his identity will be known as it is displayed in heaven. From now on, he says, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Though men treat him shamefully as one deserving of condemnation, God the Father will rise him up as one worthy of adoration. And they understood Jesus to be appealing to God for his vindication because it prompts their question, Are you the Son of God then? And to this, Jesus gives an interesting response saying, you say that I am. And again, one, one may ask, well, if Jesus wasn't lying and he wasn't afraid of death, then why doesn't he just respond with a simple, yes, I am? And that's a legitimate question. The answer lies in the difference between the Messiah that the Old Testament depicts and how the Sanhedrin conceived of the Messiah. You see, Jesus did not want to conflate their misunderstanding of a Messiah figure with how he actually fulfilled that role. Yet nonetheless, they rightly understood Jesus' response to be a general affirmation of their question. 
scholars say that in the original language, one uh, would understand in a more full sense what Jesus to be saying here to sound something like, that's your word, not mine. I would not have put it like that, but since you have, I cannot deny it. He wouldn't have put it like that because they thought differently about the implications of what all that meant. Nonetheless, Jesus can't rightly deny that He is indeed the Son of God. So He acquiesces. And at His coerced confession, with the Sanhedrin having violated at least seven judicial laws, they think that they've found the innocent one to be guilty. They say in verse 71, what further testimony do we need? And with that, because they did not have the authority, the civil authority to execute him, they escort him to Pontius Pilate. And as it was in the court of the Jews, so it was in the court of the Romans. Though, though accused and assumed guilty, Jesus wasn't rightly convicted by the Jews. He, he couldn't be because they weren't using the, their terms in the same way. But Jesus had resigned himself to allow them to make their judgments. And we see much of the same in his interaction with the Roman authorities. In verse 1 of chapter 23, the, the whole company of Jewish authorities led Jesus to Pilate the governor. Once before him, they had to bring charges that were relevant to the Roman government because the Romans would not be interested in trying Jesus for violations of Jewish law. So instead of telling Pilate that they wanted him executed for blasphemy, they say that he's guilty of three things, all of which are a lie. We find them there in verse 2. The charges are that he was misleading the nation of the Jews or inciting a riot. The second charge was forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. And the third was saying that he himself is Christ a king. For anyone who's read the rest of Luke's gospel account, the first two charges are clearly a lie. Jesus nowhere suggested, much less encouraged his followers to rise up against the Romans. And in Luke chapter 20, when asked about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus plainly says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Interestingly enough, Pilate doesn't even consider the first two objections. He turns to Jesus in verse 3 and he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responds, You have said so. Now again, the, the question may be asked, Why did Jesus res not respond with a simple yes? After all, in Luke 9, Jesus affirms P Peter's assertion that he is the Christ of God. And to say that He is the Christ is to say that He is the Messiah, the King of God's people. But again, we're seeing here a disparity in the way that the terms are being used. Pilate's only concern in asking the question, you see, is whether or not Jesus is laying claim to a geopolitical rule. Jesus' kingship is not primarily focused in this age on such rulership. Still, yet, He cannot claim that he is something other than the rightful ruler of God's people. And in fact, in, in John's account of this interaction, Jesus is even clearer with Pilate, saying, My kingdom is not of this world. 
Discerning that Jesus then is no threat to the Roman government, Pilate declares in verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. But at the persistence of the Jewish leaders, and upon learning that Jesus was from Galilee, Pilate shrinks back from doing the righteous thing and releasing Jesus, and he sends him off to Herod. Verse 8 tells us then that when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. But Herod's hearing about Jesus had not produced a, a humble heart that sought to know the truth. No, according to verse 8, Herod's curiosity was merely because he was hoping to see some sign. Herod's fleshly appetite led him only to be interested in entertainment. And it was to that end in verse 9 we find that he questioned him at some length. Yet just as with the mocking guards in the high priest's courtyard, Jesus again would not allow his divine power to be commanded or manipulated by men. Even men that could deliver him and free him from execution. In all the questioning of Herod, Jesus apparently gave no response so Herod gives up on formally charging Jesus. But not before he falls in line with those guards back in the courtyard. Fully aware of the innocence of Jesus, but unable to obtain the sensational entertainment that he desired, Herod gets his pleasure by way of treating Jesus, the innocent one, as a, a wretched criminal. He and his soldiers, according to verse 11, treat him with contempt and mock him. Then arraying him in spl splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And this is a display to Pilate that the charges of insurrection and the claims of kingship are more laughable than legitimate. And laugh Herod did at the Lord of glory. You know, as I spent some time meditating on the whole treatment of Jesus throughout this passage in its various scenes, I couldn't help but hear something in my head that my dad used to say to me. When, whenever I would exhaust him with a series of disobedience, he would look at me and say, Son, I brought you in this world, and I'll take you out of it. I know that doesn't really fly in our culture today, but it did the trick when I was a kid to usually snap me back into place. And as I thought through this passage this morning, I couldn't help but see some parallels. You see, it wasn't until becoming a parent that I realized just what an affront it is to persist in disobedience to parents that literally brought you into being. And not only that, but who provide all that's necessary for life. Not to mention the grace involved in giving children the pleasures that they so often long for. It really is frustrating when those totally dependent on your provision respond with scornful defiance. It begs the question, who do you think you are? Which is a fitting question for all of those mistreating Jesus in this passage. Who do you think you are? The Lord of glory comes before you, the creator of heaven and earth, and you 
who He has made from the dust of the earth. You know He works wonders and signs, Herod. Yet you have the gall to not only question His authority, but to make a mockery of Him. Who do you think you are? It's the greatest scandal in the universe. No doubt that the creature might think to look on the Creator with pity. Yet according to the will of God, these men were not meant to perceive the divine nature of Jesus. So he remained in their custody and he was shuffled off back to Pilate. And again, Pilate is faced with the decision to do what is just or unjust. He knows what is just. Even even without perceiving the divine nature of Jesus, he knows what is just. Just. He proclaims once more to the Jewish authorities in verse 14 that he did not find this man guilty of any of their charges. And he adds in verse 15 that Herod had come to the same conclusion. So Pilate, in effort to placate the Jewish council, determines that he'll give Jesus a beating and release him. Because it was the custom in that day that in celebration of the Sabbath that a prisoner might be released and pardoned. I'm sorry, not the Sabbath, but the Passover. But this isn't sufficient for the Jews. Therefore, according to verse 18, the Jews all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. And this is where Luke begins to make his second point. The first point we've seen is that in the death of Christ, the innocent is treated as guilty But here, he begins to show us that in the death of Christ, the guilty is treated as innocent. When the call comes out for Barabbas to be released, it it takes Pilate off guard, as it would any right-headed person. Barabbas was, verse 19 tells us, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Barabbas, you see, was a true criminal imprisoned and awaiting his own execution. In fact, we can't go too far in our speculation, but it's not a far fetch to believe that the third cross prepared this day was to be his. So you can see why Pilate is taken aback by the insistent rage of the crowd. How could they desire to release this man over Jesus? It was clear to everyone that Barabbas was guilty of his crimes and deserving of punishment. And Jesus is to be put to death in the absence of any evidence against him? The governor governor couldn't wrap his head around it. So verse 20 tells us that Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Luke could not be more clear in his communication. He claims that for a third time, the governor declared the innocence of Jesus. There was no fault to be found in him. Yet the will of the crowd was so resolute that they determined not only that the innocent one should be treated as guilty, But that in order to make that happen, if it must be so, the guilty should go free as innocent. 
And we see here that it's not only the resolute will of the crowd, but the resolute will of God as well. Because we're told that their voices prevail. And so verse 24 says that Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. It, it was the plan of God all along to exchange the innocent for the guilty. This, this is not just the counsel of the Jews at work. This is the eternal counsel of the triune God at work. Friends, Barabbas is no random side character who plays a passing role here. What we're meant to see is that in a real sense, Barabbas represents the meaning of the cross. You see, friends, we are Barabbas. That's how we're to perceive his role in the narrative. Barabbas represents all of God's elect who find their hope of life in the substitutionary death of Christ. Barabbas was guilty, and everyone knew it. We are guilty of sin, and it's readily apparent. Barabbas sat shackled in prison due to his sin. We are born in a state of spiritual imprisonment, shackled by our sin. Barabbas sat on death row, awaiting the execution of justice to meet him any day. We, by nature, Paul says, are children of wrath who, apart from Christ, are subject to meet the day of God's judgment at any moment. But Barabbas was led from his prison cell to see the Lord Jesus enduring his punishment in his stead. And we, brothers and sisters, experience the same when we trust in Christ to bear the punishment for our sins in our stead. And friends, no matter where you are this morning, this scene is meant to give you hope. I'm convinced that one of the most glorious gifts that were given by God is this clear picture of the specificity with which Jesus becomes our substitute. Take note, Jesus here is charged unjustly with the same charge that Barabbas was in fact guilty for. Luke even repeats the charge against Barabbas in verse 25 so that we'll get the point. Barabbas is charged with insurrection and so is Jesus. And while Barabbas was guilty, he goes free. While Jesus, being innocent, goes to the cross rightly meant for Barabbas. Friend, do you get it? Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. If you're sitting here and you, you haven't ever trusted in the sacrificial death of Christ to pay the penalty for your sins before God, and you've always thought, yeah, yeah, but I wonder if he's talking to me. I wonder if God could really forgive my sins. If that's you, then friend, I'm glad that you sense the heinous nature of your sin against a holy God. But please see the picture set before you this morning. 
See the picture set before you in the text. Jesus becomes the life-giving substitute for the lowest of the low. And not just generally does he stand as a substitute. He takes on himself the very same charge which belonged to the guilty. So friend, there is no sin for which Christ's sacrifice can't be applied. That's the point of the text. It's the point of the exchange. The substitution of his life for Barabbas is specific. And friend, his atonement for your sin is specific. Trust him today, won't you? There's nothing more to be done. All the punishment and payment for your sins has been satisfied in Christ Jesus if only you look to Him in faith, friend. And my brothers and sisters in the faith, what encouragement there is for us here. No doubt we can be plagued with guilt over past sin. We may even face doubts about the ability or the willingness of Christ to pardon the sins that abide with us to this day. But this text is a clarion call to see in our Lord Jesus the most patient and kind willingness to persist in grace towards us. Whatever sins you are truly and evidently guilty of, He has taken to Himself in His death that you might stand before God with the verdict of innocence that truly belongs to Him. And we know that it's not the will of the Jews or the Romans that drive Jesus to this moment. It's His willingness to bear your sins that drives Him. That's His own testimony in John chapter 10 and verse 19 when Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Praise God for His willingness to persist in grace even unto death in our place. You know, I said at the outset that some texts demand of the audience to do something in response, while others demand you to believe something. But, but that's a bit of an overstatement. Most texts actually call us to both believe something and do something in response. As I contemplated this, I I think that the response to this text is captured best by the lyrics of that hymn, And Can It Be? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, our response this morning should be to believe and marvel at the reality that Christ has taken your sins upon Himself. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And that marvel should lead to a response of grateful submission to Him. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed 
thee. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do pray to that end this morning. That in consideration of the profound sacrifice of Christ, laying aside His infinite glory for our, our salvation, Lord, we do pray that You would help us to be those that marvel at His sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to be so awestruck by this that we surrender all in total abandon to Him, desiring to follow Him all the days of our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.